This is Michael Krasny welcoming you to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And our guest this episode is Dr. Abraham Verghese, physician, author, and professor of the theory and practice of medicine and vice chair of medicine at Stanford Medical School. He's the author of two best-selling and highly praised memoirs, My Own Country, A Doctor's Story, and The Tennis Partner, A Story of Friendship and Loss. And he's also the author of two widely acclaimed best-selling novels, Cutting for Stone and The Covenant of Water. He was elected to the Institute of Medicine in 2011 and received the National Humanities Medal in 2015 from then-U.S. President Barack Obama. And I welcome Abraham Verghese. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Michael. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you. And you are really enjoying, well, 14 years of labor on your latest book, The Covenant of Water. It's been uh, sort of joyful for me as a friend for many years to see all of this celebration of you and your work. Uh, Most recently on Facebook, I saw picture of you with Oprah Winfrey and Jasmine Ward, and uh, you've been traveling all over the country, really all over the world, haven't you? Well, it's, uh, you know, this is really not so much the tour, which is kind of winding down, but more one-off events. But um, I'm having a lot of fun. I mean, I think I'm philosophical. Uh, Who knows when this might happen again, and it's uh, an ephemeral moment of uh, attention, and I'm just quite relishing it. I'm quite content for it to pass on to whatever it does. <laughs> yeah, I was quoting Emily Dickinson about fame, the fickle food upon a shifting plate. But while you have it, it's very enjoyable, as ephemeral as it may be. And uh, the reality is, when you get it at a certain age, it's very different than... Uh, how would you have reacted to this adulation and all this attention if you were in your 30s or 40s? Well, I'm not sure that I... I think I would have let it get to my head a lot more and, uh, you know, made me think of myself as a better writer than I really am. When the reality is, as you well know, with every book, you you start with a blank page. Uh, You're given nothing. Uh, You might have some, you know, life experience. You might have some experience with how long the process is. But creatively, you're starting from ground zero. And um, that is very humbling. It's also humbling to think of all the work that goes into the editing process and to the curating process. In fact, Covenant of Water, as I understand it, had 50,000 words removed from it before it went to print. Maybe more than that. I'm not sure. I certainly wrote a lot more than what's in the present book. But, um, you know, I think that's just the nature of the process for me. I wish I were one of these authors who could see the whole story at the outset and could plot it out and then just follow the, the, the blueprint. But I tend to be one of these authors who sort of pushes a feeling along, a mood. And it takes me on some wonderful paths of discovery, but it also leads me down blind alleys that can go on for hundreds of pages and many months and even years. So this is a slow process for me. But ultimately, you find out what you're thinking, and that's the mystery of writing and what it reveals. Yeah, you find out what you're thinking, but also I think there's a certain point, especially in the novel, where years into it, perhaps, in my case, where I suddenly see the whole picture. And even though I'm far from finishing, I know what the end is. And now I can start trying to bring in all the harmonics and resonance that, you know, that makes everything come together like a nice, nicely made watch. Uh, this is a state where that many authors arrive at before they begin, and hats off to them. I just can't do that. So uh, those, the, the biggest moments in this book were when I suddenly saw what was going to happen and felt it to be organically true and now could proceed to just write to the end. Even then there were surprises, but there was a whole level of relief that, that came into being at that point. A decompression, I think, is the best word maybe that surmises. Uh, I remember you telling me years ago that you did some imaging of seeing yourself as number one on the New York Times bestseller list, which came to fruition and came to pass. I just wondered if maybe there's something to be said for imaging, for imaging well, success, for example. You know, I think, I think you should, it shouldn't be writing if you don't have high aspirations. So, you know, I often have people approach me and say, you know, I'm writing this thing and, you know, I'm hoping to, you know, maybe it's a book. And, and I always think, well, that's just the wrong attitude. If you, don't, if you don't know what the bar is and if you're not aiming to clear the bar, you know, don't even try. And it's very likely you may not clear the bar, but at least you're, you're trying like that. You know, so why shoot yourself in the foot by saying, oh, I'm just going to write this little thing. I hope you like it. I don't have any aims for it. 
if you don't have Amesford, why show it to me? You know? Well, there are people who say you should write for yourself, but I remember, uh, for some reason, Selman Rushdie's words echoing through my mind when he said, uh, just another book doesn't necessarily add to civilization if it's just another book. Or another, another phrase I love is, Everyone has a novel in them, but most of those novels need to stay in them. Or in the closet, yeah. (laughs) In them or in the closet. But storytelling has been vital to you, whether it was the two memoirs you wrote or the two novels now that are part of our oeuvre, our our canon, and uh, some of the most respected works in contemporary American writing. Uh, What comes to my mind is the fact that they've always been wedded to each other for you. That is, understanding lives... I want to talk to you about medicine and your brand of medicine, often described as uh, uh, an empathic medicine or a medicine of a different sort than uh, what perhaps traditionally many people identify, uh, bedside manner medicine. But getting to that sense of storytelling and getting into people's lives, you do it through the lies of fiction, but you're understanding the details of their lives really and the nuances of their lives in both. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're all living in story, so to speak, you know, from our earliest moments, we're raised on, you know, fables and stories of origin. And then the stories get more sophisticated. It always amazes me that adults, especially adult men, stop reading fiction when this is how we were raised. Uh, It's really striking to me how much of the book audience is women. And I think, um, you know, I, I puzzled at the explanation. I think part of it is women are just smarter. But I think that men are not realizing, by and large, the, the vital nature of fiction, the need for us to, you know, take stories in from a printed page, take those little digital signals, make a mental movie. I think it's an important aspect of keeping your creativity or your brain functioning. And if you don't do it, there's atrophy. So, you know, I think I'm tapping into universal storytelling. But I think being in medicine, which is also very much about storytelling. People think it's a cut and dry science. Far from it. It's a, it's a human story. As William Osler said years ago, it doesn't matter what disease this patient has. It matters what patient has disease. So, you know, it's a very human endeavor. And I don't see my writing as far removed from that same process. It's, however, uh, almost axiomatic in a lot of medical education that uh, you're supposed to look at things as a scientist. And it's gotten so technical now that it's, I mean, I think this has been one of your hobby horses. It's removed us, from, or one of your professional uh, dicta, that it's removed us more than it should from our emotions. Maybe men are less emotional because they're trying to be less interested in fiction and less interested in the life of uh, uh, the inner life, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think that the current state of medicine, to me, represents sort of a, a bizarre deviation. It's not that we don't need the science, but this has always been the art and science of medicine. You know, we're not applying these scientific breakthroughs to test tubes or to cells in a petri dish. We're applying them to human beings. And uh, William Carlos Williams famously said many, many years ago when Robert Coles was a young medical student and trailing William Carlos Williams in Patterson, New Jersey. And as you know, Williams was a celebrated poet and but also a pediatrician practicing in Patterson. And he said to Coles, he said, the physician on the front line is not dealing with a liver or a lung or a heart. They're dealing with one guy or gal in distress. And the physician must fall back on his or her own sense of self in order to understand what is happening with this patient. I thought that was a beautiful description. I mean, the the instrument is not science. The instrument is us applying the science, applying the knowledge, and applying special knowledge of this individual before us. And we've gotten far away from that, but that's hardly the norm. This is what I'm describing is what we were, what we are meant to do. How do we remove ourselves uh, so that we can get closer as opposed to getting farther away? Some thoughts on that? I'm sorry, just, can you restate that? Well, you, you were talking about William Carlos Williams and being far away from patients as opposed to closer to them. I mean, you're not supposed to touch patients. I remember you talking about how touching can be a form of healing and a tactile can really express 
inner life and emotion and connection and all of that, but we've moved farther away. How do we move closer? Yeah, we wind up, you know, dealing with the data around the patient in a room far away from where the patient is. And, and, and I think, you know, I'm not an advocate of touching for the sake of touching. Uh, I believe that the physical exam is a historical part of our, of what we do. You know, we do the history, we do the physical, but it's been given lip service in the last two decades and people are billing for a exam that they don't do. But if you do the exam well, and if I have any reputation in academic medicine is because I really champion this. If you do the exam well, one thing you're picking up obvious things that the body's telling you, you're reading the body and you're saving the patient unnecessary diagnostic tests that, you know, when the, when the diagnosis is obvious, it's stating it's in front of you, or you're asking better questions of the test. But more important, Michael, you're also localizing the problem on the patient's body, not on an x-ray report or a biopsy report or some remote something. You're sort of helping them frame this on their persona. And I've always felt that, you know, the, the physical exam, we don't think about it this way, is such an important ritual. You know, here you are with a perfect stranger who's just told you volumes about themselves that they wouldn't tell their rabbi or imam or preacher. And, you know, there's one individual in a white shamanistic outfit, one in a paper gown that no one knows how to tie or untie. That's part of the great mystery of this ritual. The furniture doesn't look like furniture in anybody's house. And then one person disrobes and allows touch. It has all the trappings of ritual. And, you know, the great privilege of being a physician is in the context of this ritual, we're allowed to touch in the context of examining. And if we don't do it well, the patients are onto us. But if we do it well, there's a important transaction, a transformation, which is true of all rituals that takes place. So I think that I'm not advocating some old art or some witchcraft kind of thing. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what we bill for. The fact is we're not doing it. No, I completely agree with you, but for the fact that we are in an era of so-called assembly line medicine, where many reports have to be written, and we also have people very uh, adverse to touch. Uh, the Me Too movement has made us maybe overly sensitive to any kind of touch and tactile feeling. I don't think that's so in the context of the patient-physician relationship. I mean, far from it. I find quite the opposite issue. I mean, obviously, if the patient is averse to being examined, I'm not going to force the issue. No, nobody would. On the other hand, I think that if they believe, as most patients do, that this is an integral part of your seeing them, they wind up being disappointed after all that ritual production. All you do is stick your stethoscope on the paper gown or just do a prod of the belly and you're done. It's like, well, why bother? Why did I, why did I bother to take off all my clothes if this is all you can do? Whereas you know, when, when you do a thorough exam and you put your patient through the paces, and I've been doing the same thing for 40 years, you know, I can expand it, shrink it, but I think it conveys something to the patient about, you know what you're doing. And so the subsequent conversation is, is sort of helped by that, by, the, by that authority. It's just like you and I are great judges of a sloppy barista, a sloppy hairdresser, a sloppy you know, automobile repair person. We can't do what they do, but we always know when someone's doing their thing well. I think patients have the same discernment. And when we do our job sloppily, what we're meant to do, what we bill for, patients are onto us. Can you teach doctors to be more empathic though? Uh, isn't empathy sort of part of one's wiring and nature? I actually don't think so, Michael. I think that our medical students come to us with a tremendous capacity to imagine the patient suffering. Uh, it's just what happens is in the process of medical education, the volumes of information that you have to learn, the focus on disease, it becomes very easy to lose focus on the human being because you've got so much of this other stuff to do. And you compound that with being very busy, high turnover. But I think when you, when you scratch the surface, most physicians I think are plenty capable of empathy. It's a very, fairly unforgiving system though. Uh, we are essentially being run by um, bureaucrats in a automobile production factory kind of setting, which is necessary to capture 
the, the, the diminishing reimbursement coming in every direction. So we're sort of caught in this vice between needing to fund what we do and yet trying to provide the kind of care patients want and that we want to deliver. It's a very unhappy time in medicine. Many, many physicians leaving medicine, tremendous burnout, patients not, unha not happy. But I do think the pendulum is going to swing back. It will swing back. Uh, I like the hope that you resonate with when you say that, and I want to talk to you about hope in the course of our conversation, but I want to also bring in some of our listeners' questions. Uh, this is John, who's in Reno, Nevada, and he says, in the innovator's prescription, Harvard's Clay Christensen argues for a combination of value-based care and expanding the responsibility of entry-level clinicians. What changes do you think are critical for medicine success in the future? Well, I think the most critical change, which was, is the big uh, gorilla in the, in the room we never talk about, the biggest change we need is reform, reformation of payment. Right now in America, we are paid more for doing things to people, sticking things in them, cutting on them. You're paid more for doing that than to, for doing things for people. So, you know, if my father, who's 97, needs a 45-minute visit with the primary care physician to go over all his medications, that's a challenge to find an individual willing to do that because it's not worth their while. The reimbursement is pathetic. On the other end, if he needs a, I don't know, a heart valve change or a pacemaker, we're fending off the specialists who are happy to do that. So everything is skewed towards things that pay. I mean, look around you, Michael. You've seen freestanding surgery centers, short-stay surgery centers, freestanding birthing centers, have you ever seen a freestanding geriatric center? And yet that is the burning need of our community. You know, so we, we, we sprout up with these things that pay. So I think the biggest reformation we need, if we can ever get there, is payment reform. And here's uh, John with another question. How can providers leverage technologies like generative AI to provide a better patient experience? What will medical schools do to upskill providers in these areas? And thanks for the questions, John. I'm very hopeful that AI, you know, can relieve some of our current burden. I mean, right now, most of us are dealing with an antiquated electronic medical record system that was never built for our comfort. It was built to capture every last billable dollar. It's a, it's a clunky, awful system, but most big hospital systems have spent a billion dollars to buy this thing, so they're not about to throw it out of the window. But I think AI, uh, the, the capacity for natural language processing could and should capture what's really happening with the patient and the physician without our having to sit there and be the highest paid clerical workers in the hospital typing away what just happened. Similarly, I think there's a tremendous opportunity to remove a lot of the, you know, the, the routine in-basket stuff. My only fear is that given how things usually are, if we're freed up from that kind of time, most of us hope that it will give us more time with the patient, but it, it may not. It may be that they just pile on more work. So it's a crossroads in medicine right now. I'm very excited to watch what happens. What you say in language resonates with me because uh, I was reading recently about someone who was Hmong background, and they couldn't understand what she was so fearful of, and it had to do with superstition, and it had to do with fears, which she had with pain she was experiencing that went into being interpreted thanks to AI. Uh, I mean, that sort of thing, it seems to me, is really the, the more positive side of AI, as you've indicated. Or in Here's Reed uh, getting us back to your writing. Uh, Reed says, I love The Covenant of Water and your reading of the audiobook. Why did you choose to read it yourself, and did you learn anything new about your book and speaking it aloud? Well, you wanted to make sure all the pronunciations were right. I know that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think in general... A red flag should go off if you ever see an author, especially a fiction, reading their own work. Because if you think about it, you know, what, what do we know about performing an audiobook? Uh, I'm listening right now to Tom Lake by Ann Patchett, and it's performed by Meryl Streep. It's just wonderful. Uh, so I chose to audition, and I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I said, I'd like to audition for this role, and I only want you to let me do it if I'm the best you can get. And my motivation was just that. I mean, there's a lot of ethnic terms. And with all due respect to, you know, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks and all these famous people who record audiobooks, they would struggle with some of these ethnic terms. And I know at least I, as a listener, would, 
it would feel like you know someone scratching on a chalkboard to hear to hear them mangle some of these words. And so I resolved that I wanted to try and do it. I had to do a lot of learning. I had to, you know, I was really had a had a wonderful coach in the producer and studio tech and learning how to pitch my voice, slightly different pitches to indicate men and women on the same page. Learning and but not too much. And learning to do accents, you know, Glaswegian, Gordy, every kind of uh, Indian regional accent, every kind of British upper crust, you know, and Cockney. But again, not too much, but just sufficient to allow the listener's fictional dream to continue as they listen without without intruding on it. It was fun. There's something else. I'm glad you had fun with it. I had fun doing an audiobook. Uh, but like you, I learned things in doing an audiobook that I didn't realize when I was writing the book or even when it came into publication. Yeah, I think when you do nonfiction, you record your own work of nonfiction, there's an authenticity to it that I think it makes it a natural thing for a writer, if they want to, to record their own nonfiction audiobook. But fiction is a is a different beast, and you're often better off with someone who does this. Uh, in my case, it turned out to be a good thing. I mean, I'm really delighted with the way the audiobook has, you know, has been was number one for a long time. Is still on the top ten of downloads. Uh, I confess, when I finished it, and when they'd done their AI thing of taking out all the clicks and stomach noises. They have a whole lexicon for abnormal sounds that creep in. And when they cleaned it up and I listened to it, I didn't like it, Michael. I think it's because we're not used to hearing our voice outside of the boom box of our, our own skulls, you know what I mean? And it just didn't sound right to me. And I, had, I was just thinking I made a terrible mistake in volunteering to do this. So it was very, very gratifying to have listeners like it and, uh, you know, really like it. Well, I've, as I've said a number of occasions, you're a humble man, but I, I dislike hearing my own voice, even though people really? tell me, yeah, I do. I, people tell me yeah. I have a very nice voice, although it's aging and getting a little ragged. But uh, the reality is that uh, when I listen to it, sometimes I actually find myself recoiling. <laughs> uh, yours, is the, yours is the perfect radio voice. I mean, I think that's the thing that draws you, this wonderful audience. You're this something... uh, I wasn't inviting that flattery, but I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, this is Chris from Tempe, Arizona, who says, My best teachers spent time building relationships and community well before turning to teaching content and skills to be learned. Does this apply to the doctor-patient relationship? Well, yeah, I think that, you know, at least my generation of physicians, everything we learned was really based on modeling what we saw our professors, our teachers, our attendings do. So, you know, it's very important for residents and students to be able to see good clinicians doing what they do and to model that. Uh, these days, we, we're doing that less. We're also teaching things like and how to break bad news, how to do this, how to do that. I mean, it's, it's all been broken down into sort of manuals, if you like, but that doesn't begin to convey the, the heart and soul of, you know, what a good clinician can do and how much they can influence you. I mean, I remember one of my attendings in the ICU, you know, where it's very tempting to, you know, in every day report on the progress of the urine output, you know, how's the kidney doing, the heart, the lung, you know, organ system by organ system. He would stop us before we started and say, put your hand on the patient's body. And mind you, the patient was often out on a ventilator, unaware of what's going on. And he says, tell me a little bit about the patient and then tell me the usual, you know, breakdown of organ systems. I thought that that was such a beautiful way to remind us of, you know, the person there, which is which supersedes all these other business of, you know, their FiO2 and their cardiac output and this and that. Well, you learn an immense amount from your patients. You also learn from your readers, don't you? Yeah, I actually think I do. Maybe more so now. Uh, Miss Winfrey said to me, you know, I mean, the, and the way she received the book was, Extraordinary. Her enthusiasm, I, I just couldn't, you know, believe it. And uh, she said, you know, pay attention to what your readers are saying um, if you want to understand what it is you did. Because I must say, I, I, I didn't write a book saying, I'm going to try and produce this effect on the reader. Or I'm going to, you know, have this heroic mother figure. I'm trying to write a good story. A good story well told is my goal. 
But in trying to understand, we have this unique opportunity in the last 20 years or so, you can read comments on uh, wherever it is, you know, on, on wherever readers leave comments, Amazon or any other site. And you, you get these amazing stories and you should, and you can try to pull out what are consistent themes. They really sort of help you, in some cases, understand your writing. At other times, they are affirming of something that I think I've always known, which is, I think the writer provides the words, Michael, and the reader provides their imagination. And somewhere in middle space, the reader makes a mental movie, which is uniquely theirs. And that's the great joy of reading, is you're using this information from the writer to make your own movie. And everybody's got a slightly different take on this. It's very unique to them. Uh, so it's just fascinating to, to listen to that, to read. I think it makes me perhaps a better storyteller and that I'm much more conscious of some of the effects that I might be producing in the context of telling a story. Well, you once quoted uh, Kafka's famous line about what a book should do. It should be an axe for the ice within. Actually, Anne Sexton, great poet, also hearkened back to that in terms of what poetry should do. But whether it's poetry or whether it's a novel, that's the effect you want, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you want the reader to have something about the story you know, reverberate with their own knowledge of what is true in the world or affirm something that they think is true. I mean, I think that good stories are instructions for living. They really indirectly are telling us how to be. You know, you read Dostoevsky, you read, uh, you read Saul Bellow. You're, you're really learning as a young adolescent when I read some of these books, how to be in this world. And I came across a quote by Proust that I wish I'd known of m many years earlier, but Proust says, the reader reads himself or herself in the process of reading the novel. And the book is merely an optical instrument by which they can examine themselves. And I just love that because if I think of all the novels that have been seminal novels to me, I mean, and we use that word with good reason because they, you, know, you can almost chart your life by the books that set you on this course or that course. That's what they did. They, they became optical instruments that allows you to see this is where you need to go and this is what you need to do. It's like the novel is a Rorschach, somebody once said. It's, it's an inkblot, you know, that you see what's in your head or in your heart. And uh, when you quote Proust, it makes me mindful of what Proust said about literature in general. He was talking about novel writing and whether it was, you know, the smell of a madeleine or, you know, trying to evoke the past as he did or telling great stories the way he did and the way you do. Uh, Literature is gossip on some level too, isn't it? The storytelling itself is gossip. It's just amazing. I mean, uh, I confess I haven't read all of Proust, but uh, I think I like the quote better than some of his <laughs> long ramblings, but I admire what he does. Yeah, well, you admired especially Somerset Moms of Human Bondage. That was a real breakthrough. Talk about seminal works in your consciousness, in your heart. Yeah, that was the work that, you know, really made me feel that uh, medicine was to be my calling. It's kind of surprising because there, there is actually uniformity, more or less, amongst when you try and list the books that bring people to medicine. Uh, in America, it used to be Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis, and then it was Microbe Hunting by Paul de Kruyff. And in the UK, it was The Citadel by A.J. Cronin. Yeah. Uh, and I found all those books also inspiring. I came to them later. But at a much younger age, I picked up off human bondage. And even though the medical element was minor, it spoke to me. And I think in a way, it doesn't speak to anybody else, perhaps, but made me feel that this is what I want to do. Yeah, I have a friend who will remain nameless, also a Stanford professor like you, who uh, says that he finds it difficult now at his age. He's in an older demographic than you are or than I am, but finds it difficult to find those novels that speak to him like he found when he was a young man or even a middle-aged man. Well, I think part of that is that the general taste in, in stories and novels, I think, is to be more short. Uh, it's more of this slice of life, little stories. And uh, I'm old-fashioned that way, I suspect, like your friend. I like big epic novels. I like, I like the sense of time unfolding. You pick up the book and you live generations and uh, you know so much time passes so many major events in the world and you finally put the book down 
it's still Tuesday or it's, it's the next Tuesday. You know, that feeling of time being stopped to me is the greatest joy of a novel. So I don't really want to enter a slice of life thing that I can put down in three hours. I, mean, I might admire the writing, but it's rare that I'll be sort of shaken from my roots. Although I say that and I can think of three or four novels that did do that, but nevertheless. Speaking of your roots, uh, you've uh, said on a number of occasions you like that line, geography is destiny, which goes back to Freud. And uh, I think he was talking about genitals being close to excretory functions in that geography. But, you know, you started with Ethiopia as a novelist, and that's where essentially you grew up, uh, had to flee when the revolution against Hal Selassie took place. Uh, but this last novel really is set in India, and it's a novel. Of, both novels are about the history and the politics of both those countries. I mean, in that sense, geography has been destiny for you as a novelist. It has. Um, if, I, if I hesitated about setting the novel in India, it was because as much as I was familiar with India from every summer vacation, from medical school later, it wasn't the familiarity of, you know, someone born in a particular place writing about, about that, having lived their whole life there. So I had to do a lot of research and so on. I think, um, you know, I, it wasn't the geography alone. It was the particular particular communities, the sort of ethnic mix of people. In the case of the Covenant of Water, I really wanted to focus on this fairly small Christian community to which I belong, who trace their roots to 52 AD. And it's not, there's a community that's, it's a community not many people know about. You know, they assume that all Christianity came with the English or the Portuguese, you know, in the year 1600. But no, it, it came in 52 AD. And, uh, you know, there's this robust community that intermarries and has, has very interesting customs because they still have vestiges of Hinduism because they were converted from Hinduism. And I, I always find it fascinating to set a story in a locale or, or a community that isn't very familiar to readers. And you, you take this very strange environment and yet, as they get to know the characters, you want them to find commonality and recognize that these archetypal figures are going through the same trials that everyone goes through, no matter where they are. And I think that's the joy. Uh, Amy Tan is a personal friend, and she says because she writes about Chinese lives, she's asked about China more frequently now and the politics of China. People asking you about India and about Modi, and are you getting those kind of questions? Well, they do ask me my opinion on him, but not necessarily expecting any great expertise on my part. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I like many people worry about the uh, sort of the increasing authoritative trend, not just in India, by the way, but also very much in America. It's uh, the America that I longed for, that I one day thought I might come to, the, the America of Jack Kennedy, the America of all the wonderful Peace Corps workers who I got to know in, in Ethiopia, the America of the sort of largesse of the wonderful American library that I attended and checked books out of. I would hate to think that that America is in jeopardy. Uh, and it's in jeopardy just as much as it is in India, where, you know, we're increasingly less tolerant of other people's views and, uh, you know, less, 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 um, less respectful of the democratic process, which I think is so critical. Having lived in authoritarian regimes in, regimes in, in, uh, in, in Africa, having seen a, a military dictatorship take over, having had friends tortured, uh, some perhaps executed, we'll never know. Uh, I know what that can look like. And uh, you know what makes America great is precisely the opposite. America gave you your voice, didn't it? America certainly gave me my voice. I mean, I think that that's something that I heard E.L. Doctorov say indirectly. I was listening to him speak at Sun Valley at the Writers' Festival, and he said that, you know, every immigrant who's come to America has, you know, has this desire to get down on their knees and be grateful for arriving, but also they have contributed immensely to, you know, think of your forefathers and so many other ethnic groups here have, com have contributed to this nation. In my case, I feel like, yeah, America gave people like Saul Bellow, people like, I mean, you name any of these great immigrant writers have come here. 
They gave us our voice. America gave us our voice. And yet you're still longing for a place you can call a hometown. Well, I, I, I'm not longing for a country. This is my country, and I'm really proud to be an American and uh, you know, no desire to walk away from... But you're envious of those who have hometowns that they can claim, right? Hometown part I do miss. You know, I, I miss and envy people who can go back and you know, visit their grandparents' home or, you know, go to the schoolyard where they, they played college, they played football. I will never have any of that. But um, on the other hand, I think that being this perennial peripatetic traveler as a writer is not a bad thing. You're always on the outside looking in and making observations, which is, is what I have to settle for in the absence of a hometown. Well, you've traveled so much recently. Any place that particularly beckoned you or called to you or imprinted something on you? Well, I think uh, when I when I first arrived in America, I was in New Jersey, which was a, you know an interesting experience. But then, as a resident, I was in Tennessee, in a small town, and then later in the, on the faculty there, and I just loved it. I thought it was the most beautiful place. But then I've thought that about many places I've lived. I was in El Paso and loved it. I was in San Antonio, made great friends. I love Menlo Park now. What takes me away isn't. Uh, any deficit in the town. I've been in Iowa City, Boston. It's just been the nature of my, my career. Uh, but the end result is I don't really have... And Menlo Park is the closest to home. The longest I've ever lived anywhere, as I think of it now, is Menlo Park, other than Ethiopia. 15 years here. Another question for you from Hillary in Charlotte, North Carolina, who says, you've mentioned the concept of slow medicine. Could you explain what this means and how it can benefit both patient and physicians? Yeah, I'm not sure that it's my concept. I think it's a term, uh, I heard Victoria Sweet. I think she has a book called Slow Medicine. She does, yeah. I mean, I think it's the notion that we're, we're, we're in the grips of the seduction presently where one has a sense that more data is better than less data. Not necessarily. One has, the, you know, sometimes it's like... It's like having 700 channels on your TV. It actually gets in the way of your watching one or two consistently and making up your mind about something. So I think slow medicine is really about taking the time to listen more. It's about trying to do less until you're sure why you're doing these things. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a concept, but I'm afraid it's a struggle to make it happen. The only places where I see people practicing medicine exactly the way they want to are people who go into concierge medicine. But in a sense, you know, as much as I like the idea of being able to take all the time you need of your patients, being available to them, having a panel of, I don't know, 300 instead of 3,000, it only, it limits you to people who can afford your annual, you know, subscription fee. And so a lot of the patients I have enjoyed taking care of would never be able to be my concierge patients if I became a concierge doctor. I think your background as an infectious disease expert, though, you were talking about living in Tennessee, I mean, gave you a unique perspective that many physicians simply don't have. You were dealing with AIDS in a place where there was tremendous shame and you know, desire to cover up any connection to AIDS because of homophobia and so forth. I mean, you saw things that uh, everyday physicians simply can't see or don't see. Yeah, I think, you know, AIDS turned out to be, you know, as an infectious disease physician, I went into it before HIV, you know, thinking that this is the specialty that's all about cure. You make an astute diagnosis on this person with fever and rash from Malaysia or the Congo and they rise like Lazarus, instead of which this fatal illness landed on our laps. And uh, it was a terrible thing, and yet it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me as, a, as, a, you know, as an individual. I learned so much. I was humbled by being unable to cure these patients. They taught me so much about, they were mostly gay men initially. They taught me so much about manhood. They taught me so much about bravery. And also being in that small Tennessee community, as much as there was shame and secrecy, families broke the stereotype and took loving care of their gay sons, even if they didn't understand their lifestyle. And that's why I wrote a book about that, because I was just struck by how none of this fits people's expectations. For, for one thing, there were many more cases in the small towns of America than anyone knew. 
And it was the phenomenon of, you know, young men who had left because they were gay quietly as part of the general exodus, lived for decades in the big cities, San Francisco, New York, were now coming back because the virus had got them, their partners had died. And so there was this quiet return to America. And I was, to, it's a small town in America, and I was seeing a hundredfold more HIV in that small town than anyone predicted. And uh, I became a writer, Michael, to tell that story. I wrote the scientific paper describing that migration, got a lot of attention, but I felt that the language of science didn't begin to capture the, the tragic nature of that voyage, the heartache of the family, or my own grief at watching this again and again. That's how I became a writer. It was a compelling and poignant story and also extremely educational. Uh, it also was followed by another memoir about a friendship you had with a man named David Smith, who was uh, a medical student, an Australian, uh, really fine tennis player. Uh, you taught him about medicine, he taught you about tennis, but uh, I was also struck, although you were originally from Ethiopia and India in your background, and he's from Australia, talking about manhood, I mean, there's a, there's a friendship and an intimacy in that story that many Americans could learn a lot from, because American friendships don't necessarily have that kind of depth or intimacy, male friendships, male bonds. Yeah, I mean, I actually think that they do, but we're very coy to talk about them. So I do think that men have really deep friendship with other men, but they couch them in these sporting terms, you know, my golfing buddy, mm -hmm. my football. Yeah, they don't express them in the emotional inner life is what I meant to say. I want to be clear about that. You know, there, there are male friendships that I've had have been like brotherhood, you know, but that emotional intimacy is what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're probably right. And that's why I wanted to write that that story, because I wanted to give voice to what I thought was just as profound a relationship as the one women have with each other that is tremendously deep. Um, I wanted to give words to it, even if David and I may not have given words to it when, when he was you know, when he was in a position to do so. Um, I thought it was a terribly important thing. In a way, he saved me. He had uh, struggled with addiction, was going through recovery. I was uh, coming off a, you know, a divorce that was really tough. And uh, both of us, so to speak, being in recovery, w had extended lifelines to each other. But I think there are many, many analogous situations like that. The book is, though, it's a lot more about the phenomenon of addiction in medicine, which is actually a bigger problem than most people realize and has fairly unique dimensions. It's sort of skewed in a particular way because it's in medicine. Yeah, it is indeed a book about addiction. And The Covenant of Water, I just want to talk uh, about its genesis. It comes really from uh, stories that were told to your niece by your mother. Yeah, I mean, my, my mother was a pretty extraordinary woman in the sense that she left India at 25 you know, after getting a college degree because there were no jobs there and saw this position advertised in Ethiopia. And we should mention she was a physics teacher, in fact. A physics teacher. You know, imagine her in a sari sailing to Aden and then on to Ethiopia. And then eventually she came to New Jersey to teach along with my father well before I ever came to America. So she'd had this, you know, tremendous existence. And at some point, my five-year-old niece says to her, Amachi, which means grandmother, what was it like when you were a five-year-old? And my mother was so blown away by that question that she began to write in longhand these anecdotes about her childhood. And, you know, when I picked and it up... And illustrate, too. Right? Illustrate it. She's a very good yeah. artist. And uh, when I picked it up after cutting for stone, it's become a family treasure. But when I picked it up again, I was reading through it and I thought, you know what, this is where the novel needs to be set in this kind of a family beginning with a young bride, very much like my grandmother and great-grandmother. and So that was the genesis of the book. You were taking a chance, though, for an American audience having a, a arranged marriage with essentially a child, because that was very commonplace, of course, at that time. And yet, American audience is always fearful of... Uh, well, there's a verboten sense of pedophilia in that, really. Yeah, it's a very risky thing to begin a book talking about a 12-year-old bride, but... Uh, as I like to point out, most often the 11 or 12-year-old girl is marrying an 11 or 12-year-old boy, and essentially they're 
they're joining another household. They become children in this other household, and their mother-in-law becomes their closer to them than their mother. And uh, you know, the, the marriage is it's not even dreamed of being conjugated. You know, uh, what's the word I want? Not conjugated, but I guess it is conjugated. Consummated. Consummated. Sorry, that was close. <laughs> conjugated works, though, in a different sense. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God for dictionaries, right? But anyway, so um, you know, the the marriage was not in any danger of being consummated till the mother-in-law gave the blessing, which was probably in their sixteenth year or so. Um, and it was a sad event when a girl left the house because they were unlikely to ever come back to their family home. It was no longer their home. And even if they came back, they now belong to this other place. So hence the line in the second line of the book, the mother says to the bride, the saddest day of a girl's life is the day of her wedding, but God willing, after that, it gets better. <laughs> uh, certainly. It's an extraordinary character portrayal of a matriarch and uh, the head of a family. Your family has been fascinating to me, too. Not only your parents, uh, but you've got brothers. You've got a brother who's a mathematician at MIT, well, an engineer. You've got a brother who's a Google software engineer. I mean, this, uh, this is a very distinguished and prominent and successful family uh, that echoes in ways perhaps in your work, uh, the sense of family tightness and closeness and love and family values and the vicissitudes that families go through. It's at the core of your work. Yeah, I mean, I think I think of my both my brothers as incredibly accomplished, whereas I was not much of a scholar at school. And, um, you know, I'm glad I found medicine because I didn't have their innate uh, genius. My mother and my parents were never sort of harsh taskmasters, not the tiger moms you would think of, um, but they were fairly strict disciplinarians. And um, somebody asked my mom, Carrie, who I think you met, my partner asked my mom, so how did you wind up, you know, with one son in Stanford and what's the secret ingredient? And mom just said very humbly, oh, I just prayed. <laughs> and I told Carrie later, not true. You should see this ear is longer than the other ear because mom you know, her punishment is to grab your ear and twist it. So she was not incapable of being very strict. You were, I didn't know your mother was an ear puller. That uh, presents a whole new picture. But uh, so was mine, by the way. So we have, that? That in, we have that in common, among other things. Here's uh, Gary, or Jerry, from uh, Jacksonville, Florida. says, as an African, do you think some countries on the continent are progressing faster than others? And if so, why? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's, there's clearly a whole mix of pace of development in different countries. And I think it boils down to reliable rule. You know, the, if you have unstable rulers uh, and rapid turnover and military coups, it's very hard to sustain the gains of any uh, anything that you do. Um, and that's been true in pretty much in every single country. I also think that the, the, the sort of the typical democratic model that we hold up in America and elsewhere may not work in some of these countries where ethnic divisions are so strong, you need representation by ethnic group if it's ever going to work. And uh, so I'm not suggesting that, you know, it has to be democracy, but I do think it has to be something representative of what the country is made up of. And then it has to be stable. And that has been the biggest challenge, I think, you know, in addition to, you know, starting off often years behind because of many years of exploitation and colonialism and so on. Prompts me to ask you about something that occurred recently, and I'm actually eager to hear you shed some light and thought on. Uh, Tiffany Schlein, who we did a podcast with a while back, who's famous in the world of tech and uh, has written a number of books that have gotten a good deal of attention, uh, sent me an email and said, I want to know what you think now in light of basically things looking so grim, the Middle East and Ukraine and Russia and so forth. And uh, I found myself falling back on a lot of my pessimism, but saying, well, hope does spring eternal. And uh, wondering, where do you see hope? Uh, especially having dealt so much with life and death and with horrors, really, as well. You know, well, there's hope and there's hope. I think that, you know, when you're talking about the national political scene right now, I, I think that people can be very complacent about what they think is going to happen. 
you know, oh, I hope it's going to go this way. I hope it's going to go that way. And uh, Miss Winfrey said to me when I met her just recently, uh, uh, which you alluded to, she said, hope is not a game plan, <laughs> you know, which I think is very true. I think uh, if you want things to happen a certain way, you have to take concrete action. But in medicine, by contrast, hope is a very important part of what you try to convey to the patient. William Osler said many years ago, his exact quote is, it's not for us to don the hood of the executioner and take hope away from the patient. You know, so patients have, we all have a limited lifespan. We're all living a terminal condition, so to speak. So when somebody has a very serious condition, I agree with him. I don't think it's, I think our job is to be realistic, but not to take away any hope that they have. Well, there is some evidence, isn't there, that hope can actually make a difference in pathologies and in terminal cases even? I think that a certain kind of outlook can definitely make a difference. But, you know, Michael, there's an interesting study where they used AI to look at predicting mortality. And AI was infinitely better at predicting mortality than physicians. So very often we were, you know, recommending the kind of care that would not only be wasteful, but would, you know, would be taking these last months of the patient's life and making them miserable without really any chance of a better outcome. But we didn't seem to recognize it. AI looking at the huge data picture and sifting through all these things could do it. So that's an instance of where, you know, false hope winds up just sending the patient into I don't know, chemo radiation that they don't need when we should be saying, take a trip around the world or something, you know? Uh, in fact, um, I, I keep thinking about all of the diseases that we have managed to vanquish. That ought to instill some hope. Yeah, I mean, I think in that way, I'm with you. I mean, I, I know that this is a dark time in terms of all the conflict in the world, but uh, it's nowhere near what it was like in the middle of World War II uh, or World War One. You know, I think we're not come close to that kind of worldwide sort of sinking into this abyss. We're on the edge, perhaps, but uh, overall, I think uh, there is cause for hope. Climate change? <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for giving me all the easy, easy things to answer. <laughs> I worry about climate change from a point of view that may be different from what you think about, in that I really think that the more we threaten rainforests and, you know, cut down natural environments for animals, we're also cutting down the natural environment for their, for the viruses that host, that are their hosts. So the emergence of things like, you know, Ebola and so on are very clearly related to increasing interaction with those kinds of reserves. I think that that's true also of, you know, things like um, the new coronaviruses and God knows what else is coming down the pike. So I worry about climate change concretely in terms of, you know, the way we're creeping into environments that we had no business being in, or the environments themselves are changing. They're getting warmer, not sustaining life. So those parasites, pathogens seek other places. I'm getting back for a moment uh, to the importance of empathy that you've emphasized with respect to being a medical practitioner. I can't help thinking about your writing about leprosy because lepers were perhaps the most unwelcome and the most to be avoided uh, human beings on the planet, short of AIDS and some of the other things that we've seen in recent phenomena. We have a better understanding of those kinds of diseases than we ever did before, so we shouldn't necessarily be so afraid of them as we were, should we? Well, I think uh, partly why we shouldn't be afraid of them is it's becoming harder to see. Uh, when I was a child in both Africa and India, I would see lepers commonly on the streets. I would see them begging. They would come to the house. It's become an extremely rare sight, uh, thank God, in India at least. Uh, but I wrote about leprosy largely because as an infectious disease physician, it's always been a fascinating disease. And personally, I had an epiphany with these patients. I remember as a child being terrified of the lepers because, you know, they had this very forbidding you know, scary exterior, and the hype of people around you made it really scary. And it was only when I was a medical student that I, you know, understood that inside that forbidding exterior, which was caused entirely by the disease, was a 
badly traumatized human being who had not just had this disfigurement, but had the kind of rejection that I don't think anybody in society ever experiences, where you know, you're banished from a village, you're, they throw stones at you if you come near. Can you imagine what that must feel like on top of everything else? So I really wanted to... Cancel culture would be the closest thing maybe that we get to that <laughs> present day. But uh, you imagined it. I mean, you brought it to life in the Covenant of Water. You made us feel it as readers. Yeah, I think I wanted to, I like playing against the grain, you know, having a 12-year-old bride marry an older widow and have it be a great marriage and, you know, going to a leprosarum and find it to be one of the most, in a sense, holy places you can imagine in terms of pure human willingness to help each other. So I, I think I like playing against the stereotype. Well, you're also going to Jesus's teachings, maybe, that you grew up as a Christian with, you know, to be unafraid of lepers, whether they're social lepers or whether they're literal lepers in the medical sense, to be willing to touch them and willing to reach out to them, literally and figuratively. Well, you know, it's a funny thing because Christian teaching hasn't really helped people overcome their their natural prejudices. Uh, even in India, you know, we had Christians in my community were unwilling to convert the lower caste Hindus to the same religion. And if they did convert, they wanted them to practice in another church. Uh, in America, I think I've, you hear and see some of the most egregious expressions of prejudice by so-called, you know, Christians. So I don't think Christianity itself is a panacea to, to, to bring about good behavior. Well, it's a difference between teaching and the practice or the theory that, and the practice, uh, I suppose. Uh, I've got a question about the placebo effect proven to work. Uh, suggestion is powerful. Yeah, it is extremely powerful. And I think the placebo effect of, uh, you know, for example, sending someone on a pilgrimage to Lourdes or something, you know, and in the old days, that was how you treated illness. You you sent the pilgrim's progress is basically, or sorry, sorry, the Canterbury Tales is basically the tale of people on pilgrimages to various places because of their illnesses. And talk about the placebo effect of having your heart set on reaching this place where you will feel better and making this arduous voyage. We've come to learn that, you know, the placebo effect is not about tricking somebody, far from it. It's a, a measurable effect that produces measurable biochemical changes, not in everybody, but in a good percentage of people who, you know, for whom the placebo effect is powerful. And so we need to learn to channel that. And we've also learned to use this term placebo without a placebo, by which we mean the setting, the physician's attitude, the address, the environment, all these things uh, make a difference towards the patient feeling that they are on their way to progress, on their way to getting better. And for them to believe that has a measurable effect. So you did one book and it was a great success as a novel after two memoirs that were certainly successful as well. Uh, the expectation was there would be a second novel and... 14 years later, it was the second novel with a nice advance and all of that. Are you going to write a third one now? Well, I have to tell you a story about this second novel. You know, it wasn't it wasn't an easy task. Um, after the first, Cutting for Stone was so successful, there was an expectation, well, now you can do it again. You've got the magic formula. I succumbed to that expectation. I took a big advance from a publisher, and I got into great trouble because I couldn't do anything on time, and it was just dragging on, and... I felt like the publisher just didn't really care about the story. They just wanted to get it done, and, it, and they cared only about page count. So I wound up having to break with the publisher. I owe them this advance. I still owe them this big advance. Find another publisher. By then, I'm tainted goods. And I was fortunate to find this wonderful editor who, first thing he said to me, Peter Blackstock, was, a book needs to be as long as it needs to be. And... Uh, I was happy to just get published, and I, I thought I'd be really happy if some of my readers from Cutting for Stone bought this book. So everything that's happened since, Michael, has been gravy, including talking to you. And I have no illusion that I can just turn around and do it a third time. So I'm really, the tank is empty. I'd be very happy if I, nothing more ever happened. This is just fine. Maybe, I mean, I will write, but I'm not going to set myself up by saying, yeah, I'm working on my third novel, and, you know, stay tuned, far from it. <laughs> Maybe if there is a third novel in you, it'll be about Menlo Park 
or about Stanford, possibly. Yeah, actually, it may well be. I feel like I've earned the right to set a novel in America if I get around to it. And is Mary Evans uh, still your agent? The she woman is. who helped you get your first story, Lilacs, published in The New Yorker? Absolutely. Sight unseen. We still haven't signed a contract. She uh, signed me in Iowa, picking up one of my stories when I was not there, and she's still my agent. I think it was, it's a wonderful story of you're just so determined to be a novelist that you went to the writer's workshop in the University of Iowa to learn about writing there, which is a world-famous writer's workshop, uh, and made that transition from memoir, which is we could do a whole podcast on just by itself. But uh, it's certainly been a testament to your will and to your creativity and to the work that you've done. And uh, I congratulate you on an extraordinary career, both in medicine and in writing. And I want to thank uh, all those who joined us live for this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and all who will be with us on Apple, Spotify, or graymatter.show, where you can also sign up for membership. That's Gray with an E. I want to thank our Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, and Jeff. And a special thanks to our very special guest, Dr. Professor Abraham Verghese. Always good to be with you, sir. Thank you for having me, Michael. An honor. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.